Go ahead and turn to Psalm 119. We'll be there in, in just a second. Today is Reformation Sunday. In, in church history, the, the last Sunday of October was used to uh, celebrate the gracious work of God to revive uh, the church out of these traditions of men that had begun to replace the, the teachings of Scripture. Uh, these traditions created a, a problem uh, in many ways because most Christians didn't have a Bible, and even if you did, you couldn't read. Uh, so these traditions of men began to be assumed to be the teachings of God. And what happened was, as men began to look into the text of Scripture, they found that some of the teachings of the church were not biblical. But when they brought these issues to light, something even worse happened. They were told to keep quiet. They were told not to question, and they were warned that if they didn't keep silent, they would die. Or even worse, they would be removed from the church. And thus, since according to the teachings of that time, since the church had the keys to salvation, the keys to the kingdom, to be removed from the church was to be removed from the hope of eternal life. Well, on October 31st, 1517, everything kind of changed. Because on that day, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in preparation for this huge gathering, a huge gathering that was going to happen on the next day. It was going to happen on All Saints Day, called uh, All Hallowed's Day. This was the eve of that day. It was All Hallowed's Eve, or Hallow's Eve, or as the word has continued on, the Hallow Eve. Uh, everything changed that day. The Reformation was born and would spread like a fire around Europe, eventually the world. And now those thoughts didn't begin that day. The word didn't begin that day. Martin Luther didn't jump up and go <gasps> on that day and, and realize that. He was standing on the shoulders of giants who were standing on the shoulders of, of Scripture. Now, these desires to rescue biblical truth from the jaws of human uh, tradition. And that has been a battle uh, since the law was first given, even, even uh, one addressed by Christ. But something miraculous did happen uh, during that time and over the course of the next century. It happened in different countries. It happened in different languages. It was German. It was French. It was English. It was, it was uh, ultimately Christian. It was all driven by the word of God. This movement that happened on what we call Reformation Day and celebrate on Reformation uh, Sunday gave birth to what became known as Protestantism. And, and from it, we get the Puritans. And from the Puritans, uh, we get our first founding Baptist brethren. Uh, these truths are why we would identify ourselves as a, as a Reformed Baptist church coming from these truths of Scripture. So why have a day like today? Again, you know that I, I think uh, our calendar as Christians should mirror the calendar that God laid out for His people. And when God laid out calendars for His people, those calendars, uh, the, what God modeled was a calendar not built on secular events, but a calendar uh, that was of theological memories. Days that God did great things, and those days that God did great things, sort of how your calendar lays out. And one of the chief warnings of Scripture is to remember. So here we are 500 years removed from these events. And one of the reasons we do this is I want to remember what God did. I want to remember what God did across the globe, a great movement of Christendom. The other warning that is paired in the Old Testament with remember is the danger of forgetting. The Old Testament warns us never to forget. And see, the gospel was, was only able to be perverted by these men because people were not taught the truth. And what is not taught is soon forgotten, and what is forgotten can be morphed or even discarded. And so since they weren't taught these important doctrines, they didn't realize what they had lost. They didn't realize that they were lost, and that after they were lost, then mountains of tradition were stacked on top of their bones. So we're going to show you the great truths of the Reformation, because these are not new truths that were erected, but, but old truths that were excavated from underneath those mountains. And I want to make sure that should anyone try and pervert these truths again in our day or in the day of our children or their children to a thousand generations, that they will find in us a people who have not forgotten. Because do not think that this attack against the gospel that happened some thousand years ago, do not think that that attack that necessitated the Reformation was merely a human affair. Don't think it was just a matter of bad popes and bad people. 
as we've been reading about in, in, in looking at being delivered from evil, it is a spiritual attack. One that was successful for almost a thousand years. Do not think that the enemy will not attack again the very foundations of the gospel and slowly erode them until we have forgotten them. We have this day because we want to remember. And we have this day because we never want to forget not just what the Reformation is, but what the gospel is. And that's our chief concern. Our chief concern is not, is not to talk about Martin Luther. It's not to talk about uh, Ulrich Zwingli. It's not, it's not to talk about John Calvin. Our chief desire is to talk about what Scripture teaches. So what was the Reformation about? We have Reformation Day. What was it about? The Reformation was about many things, uh, from praying to the saints to paying for your grandma to get out of heaven to if you touch a saint's fingernail, you get, you get your sins forgiven. All of those things were going on. So it was about all of those things. In fact, the church where Luther nailed his theses was not just a random church. Uh, in that town, they boasted all sorts of relics that you could touch and pray to and have sins forgiven. Uh, at that church, they had strands of Jesus' beard. Uh, even up to, you know, they said they had five particles of Mary's breast milk. All of which, if you went in and took your time and venerated, not worshipped, right? Venerated, you could have your time in purgatory reduced. So there, there was a lot to deal with. There's a lot to deal with during the time of the Reformation. But there came out of the Reformation five defining truths. Five defining truths that were driving these reformers to their actions. These became known as the five solas of the Reformation. A simple uh, way to think about the truths of Scripture uh, and the foundations of our faith. It's these Five solas, and solas just means alone. These five alones that I want us to remember today because uh, these were the things not remembered. These were the truths forgotten. These were the things that lay hidden under a mountain of human tradition. And so to remind us of this, we're going to start out by reading Psalm 119. As we read the longest chapter in the Bible, which is a chapter on the Bible, let's go ahead and stand as we read this passage and then uh, we'll be going through a lot of, of scripture today uh, and seeing seeing if perchance we can get all five if we don't well, no, we will there's not an if we don't we will uh, so let's stand in the honor of reading God's word go down to Psalm uh, 119 verse 89 go down to verse 89 forever O Lord your word is firmly fixed in the heavens your faithfulness endures to all generations you have established the earth and it stands fast by your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Uh, so today, let's look at some of the things in God's word that we are to remember, some of the things in God's word that were forgotten and that we want to make sure we don't forget. Let's look at these five solas and see how they are very much uh, tied uh, to scripture and, and born out of it. The first one we want to see, the first sola of the Reformation we talk about is scripture alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. See, the, the church at that time, the Catholic church taught and, and still teaches, really, uh, that scripture and tradition are held in parallel authority. So scripture has authority, but tradition also has authority, and the two are parallel in their authorities. That, that, that of course they would say, of course what the Bible says matters, but that the tradition of the church, primarily delivered through the teachings of the Pope, uh, as, which are as infallible as the authoritative word of God, those traditions are just as authoritative and just as important. And of course, what happens in practice is that tradition actually ends up becoming more authoritative than the Bible. Why? Because it's tradition that tells you how you're supposed to interpret, interpret the Bible. So tradition will tell, so, oh, the tradition is just as important as the Bible, but tradition will tell you, this is how you need to read the Bible. This is what the Bible, it might say this, but this is what it actually means. And so in church history, you have uh, people adding traditions to the word of God, 
leading up to the Reformation, these traditions that not only changed what the Bible said, but that added new practices to the church that, that ended up becoming a normal part of church life for quite a while. And to question these traditions that weren't in the Bible and sometimes were contrary to the Bible, like I said, uh, for the church was to question God. And just as bad as questioning the Bible, to question these traditions. Let me give you some examples of traditions that had crept their way into the church and become as authoritative as Scripture itself. In the 7th century, uh, the tradition started to, to come where the church began to teach people that not only can you pray to God, but you can pray to Mary, to Mary the mother of God. In the 7th century also, the church began to establish an office known as the Pope. Pope meaning father, the father of the church, whose words were infallible. The words have to be infallible because they're going to run in many cases contrary to scripture. So what you have to do is you have to have an infallible word of this man. That began to be assumed in the 12th century. Uh, the church taught that you can actually pay for your sins to be forgiven. In the 13th century, the church began to forbid. You can see as these things are building, the church began to forbid the Bible in the hands of non-clergy. Because after all, they're the laity. They're not anointed. Uh, so they're just going to mess up the word if they read it. So in the 13th century, the church started to say, uh, you know, people can't have the Bible, which didn't bother people because they couldn't read. Uh, and the Bible was all in Latin. So even if they could read, they probably couldn't read Latin. And in the 15th uh, century, the church began to introduce things like purgatory, uh, a state in between heaven and hell where you worked off the penalty for your sins. In the 15th century, they also established the seven sacraments. These seven sacraments were seven steps that you had to do in order for a person to be saved. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, confession, the anointing of the sick, holy orders, marriage, that it's in the doing of these things that saves you. So during the Reformation, they looked at these things and they said, no, 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 it's not tradition and Scripture, it's Scripture alone. It's not Scripture plus tradition that must guide our faith. It is Scripture alone. That the Bible alone is the source and foundation for the church's theology and practice. That the church doesn't give authority to God's Word. It is the, the church that gets its authority from God's Word. So what does the Bible teach us about sola scriptura, about Scripture alone? Is that where did they get this? Where was this born from? Well, the, church, the, the Scriptures teach us uh, that scripture has all that a Christian or that the church needs or will need. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Scripture got everything the Christian or the church will need. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work so here we see it's the bible alone that god gave us to teach us to reprove us to correct us to train us teach meaning you know what should i think reprove this is what you should not think correct uh this is how you should not live and training in righteousness this is how you should live in fact the bible does all of that to a point that paul tells timothy when when uh, when the man of god reads this he has everything he needs to be complete everything he needs to be equipped for every good Work. There's no need for tradition to correct or add to the scriptures. So the Bible has all that we need. These, these reformers are reading the scriptures. They see the Bible has everything that we need. Why are we adding tradition on top of these things? In fact, the Bible also actually warns us about the dangers of moving away from scripture alone, especially toward the traditions of men. Jesus warns us about this in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Listen to Jesus warn us about the temptation to start following the traditions of men rather than the, than the scriptures. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what, would, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God. 
He need not honor his father. That's what you teach him. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did the prophet Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus here warns us about the danger of man-made traditions and these man-made traditions eventually becoming more powerful and more authoritative than the word of God. And he does it by showing us this has always been a problem. He doesn't say, he just doesn't say, lo, lo, behold, in 1500 years, man will begin to focus on tradition. He says, look, you guys are doing what the prophet Isaiah even talked about. Something that's always been a problem. So he's at some, you know, Isaiah is 600 years before Jesus. And he says he's warning about these same things. That the Bible has always been clear that it is Scripture and not the traditions of men that are the source and foundation of our faith. And that's what the Reformers captured in this idea of Scripture alone. That it's the Bible alone that is the authority over our lives. It's the Bible alone that is the source of our faith. Scripture alone, not Scripture and tradition, not Scripture and what Baptists have always believed, not Scripture and what I was taught in my Sunday school, or not Scripture and what I've always thought about God. I feel like God would be like, no, Scripture and Scripture alone. In fact, it was Scripture alone that drove much of the Reformation to these next truths because they began to, you, you, Scripture alone has to be the foundation of that or the, these others go away because these others are going to be knocked out by the traditions of the church and of the Catholic church as it, was, as it was perverted. And so you need Scripture alone in order to do away with some of these other things. So no, after they began to see that Scripture alone is what guided and was the, the source of, of their faith, the authority of their faith, they began to, to see other things that just were not true. Uh, And so, for example, the next thing that that we'll look at that they saw is grace alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. See, the Catholic Church during that time taught that salvation comes from a combination. You got the combination of Scripture and tradition. Uh, Here you've got the combination of grace from God, but also the good works that you do. So salvation comes by God's grace, but also by your good works. And just in case your good works aren't enough, the church also taught that you can add in a little smidge of the good works of the saints, right? So so salvation came by God's grace, sort of open the door. Then you do all these good works. You don't do enough good works. You can also add the good works of other people. You can add the good works of these saints who will also maybe help boost you uh, into salvation the reformation came and said no you read the bible and the bible tells us that we are saved by grace alone it is grace alone that saves not grace and my good works not grace and certainly not someone else's good works the bible is clear that the christian life is a life that rests not on our works not on the works of others even if that other is mary or any of the saints it is solely the grace of god so let's see what the Bible says uh, comes to us by grace. Look at, look at the things that the Bible's going to say. This comes to you by grace. And how grace, grace isn't just foundational and, and then we build on top of it. You're going to see, grace isn't just what gets you in the door and then you build everything else. Grace is going to be everything. From the beginning to end in your salvation, it is only grace. It is grace alone. So let's look at at what we find out about uh, grace in our salvation. The first thing we see is we are chosen by grace alone. You have been chosen by grace alone. This is Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So God didn't choose to save us because he, he... uh, for, for some reason based on the, the good that we would do or the good that he knew that we would do, even if the good that he thought we would do would be the good of choosing to believe in him. God's choice to make us his people is built solely on his grace. Not anything he knows about us, not anything that we do, not anything he even foreknows that we might do. It is solely built on grace, chosen by grace, not works. Otherwise, Paul says, it would no longer be grace. So we're chosen by grace. Not only chosen by grace, we're saved by grace alone. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 
through 10. So we are chosen by grace alone and we're saved by grace alone. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That would be enough to stop there, but he continues on. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here we see it's by grace we've been saved. It's not our works. In fact, the works that we do are his workmanship that he created in us to do. That he prepared beforehand for us. So even the good works that we do, we do by God's grace. The good lives that we live are not lives that add to the grace that God has done. Even the good lives that we we are saved by grace alone, not our works. Even our works are a part of His grace. Are not our workmanship, it's His works that He prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So we're chosen by grace, we're saved by grace, we're justified by grace alone. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 25 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So we are justified. That word justified just means made righteous. It's, you, know, you, you know me, I like to make up new words. We are righteousified. We are righteousified by grace. We are made righteous by grace. And that that being made righteous, that righteousification is a gift. It's not a work. Your righteousness is a gift. Your justification, same word, is a gift. It's a gift. It's not a work, at least not our work. It's his work. So it makes it grace. We're justified by his grace as a gift. It's not us. Our justification, so we're chosen by grace. We are saved by grace. We are justified, made righteous by grace. But it's not just at the start of the Christian life is all by grace, right? So we're chosen, that's God's grace, and then he saves us by his grace, and we're justified by his grace, and now the rest is sort of up to us. You see that the whole of the Christian life, which was, again, assumed in Ephesians chapter 2, the whole of the Christian life is grace. It's all grace. All grace. All of grace, a great, great uh, Spurgeon book. Our continued Christian life is all grace. So we're chosen by grace, we're saved by grace, justified by grace, made righteous by grace. All of the Christian life is grace. So the Bible is going to tell us that we grow as Christians, not through our works, but through God's grace alone. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It is the grace of God, Paul says, that makes him who he is. And he worked hard. But as he looked at his works, what did he see? Even his works were the grace of God. It wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. It is the grace of God that starts our life in Christ and it's the grace of God that continues our growth as Christians. Why have you not fallen away? Why have you grown as a Christian? It is all God's grace. This is why it's so important we read that God has steadfast love, that His steadfast love endures forever, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He brings it to completion, which is why Peter tells us later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that the Christian life, if you wanted another name for the Christian life, the Christian life is really just a growth in grace. It's a growth in grace. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. When you look at your salvation, 
when you look at your life in Christ as a Christian, it's grace all the way down. It's grace from beginning to end, from alpha to omega. It's grace. It, it, when you look at it, it is grace initiated. It is grace executed. It is grace established. It is grace maintained. All of it is grace. Which is why the reformers look and say, how can, how, can we, how can we say it is grace plus something else? You certainly can't get that from Scripture. That it's grace plus the good that I do. It's grace plus the works that I do. That's what's going to get me in. It's grace plus the works that some other person did some thousand years ago. Their grace or their works and mine plus grace. The reformers looked and said, no, it's all grace. It's grace and grace alone that saves us. It is God's kindness and mercy to us. That and that alone, from beginning to end, is our hope of salvation. Never about the good works that we do. If anything, we know the good works are but an evidence of the grace that God is doing in us. So the the reformers came and said, Scripture alone. They came and they said, grace alone. They came and they said, faith alone. Sola fide. Sola fide. Grace, or sorry, faith alone. Because again, the Catholic Church taught, we, we read that you're justified uh, by grace. Well, the Catholic Church thought, yeah, you're, you're justified by faith, but faith and your works, which are going to produce righteousness in you. So your faith and your works are what's going to make you just. It's what's going to make you right. So you have, you have to have faith, right? So they didn't say you don't have to have faith, you just have to do the works. They said you have to have faith, but you also have to do these works. And it's the doing of these works that are going to be uh, your hope of salvation. The reformers came and they said, no, it is faith alone. It is faith alone in the righteousness, not our righteousness, but faith alone in the righteousness of Christ that is our justification. That is our salvation. That it is, it, 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 again, that's not to say, they would, they would say, that's not to say the Christian isn't going to be righteous. I mean, the Christian is righteous and they will bear fruit of that righteousness, but it is not our righteousness that saves us. It's not our good that saves us. And so the Bible tells us we're saved by faith, by trusting in the righteousness of Christ, not by trusting in our own good. So in other words, if if we were to come and and ask you, you know, if you've ever evangelized with a Muslim, you ask them, you know, are you going to get to heaven when you die? And they're like, I got no idea. I got no idea. Why? Because they, they've got, their, their hope is in their righteousness. And they don't know if they've been righteous enough. And they know Allah's kind of a mean guy. Uh, and he's kind, of, he's kind of a little bit of a jerk. And I'm like, demons are that way. Uh, and so they, that's, what they're, that's what they think. And so they can never know. But for the Christian, our hope is what? Our hope is not in our works, but in the works of Christ. And if your faith is in the works of Christ, you are his works of vision. Of course. Of course his works are sufficient. But never doubt his work. And that's what ultimately you're doing if you think it's your faith plus your works. You're saying, yeah, Christ has done a lot. But I better do this also. Yeah, Christ is a 90. You didn't even say Christ is a 99.9. But that point one is what I got to do. He just leaves that point one to me. Listen, it is, it is faith all the way down. It is trusting in his good, not your own. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us we're saved by faith, not by works. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, which Mike read. What does it say? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed... From faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the verse that kept rolling over and over in Luther's mind. The one that, that he just couldn't get rid of. This was, this was not his thorn in the flesh. This was a thorn in his head. That he just couldn't, couldn't get this, this scripture out of his He had all this church teaching all of this. And he's like, but, but Romans 1, 16 and 17 how can that be true that the, the, the righteous live by faith? And you're telling me, no, the righteous live by faith plus works. And as he read more and more scripture, he found more and more to Romans three twenty eight. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I read that and he goes, okay, now we've really got a problem. I know that, I know, maybe it's, maybe it's, it says we're, we're, we're made righteous by, the righteous shall live by faith, but maybe it's faith and a little bit of works. And here the scripture comes, Paul says explicitly, no, it is not. It is not. We, we do not hold that one is justified by works of the law. In fact, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Not faith with, not faith plus, but faith apart. 
from the works of the law, Romans 3.28. We read it in Ephesians 2, but again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, what does it say? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The faith that you have. It's not something that you have done for yourself. It's not something you've worked up in yourself. That's why it says it's not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the good works that you do, you're doing, why? Because God prepared beforehand that you'd walk in them. So you look at your good works, John. Okay, so I need faith plus my good works. Well, who's the, ones that, who's the one that worked these good works in you to make you walk in them? It is God. We are saved for good works, not by them. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not we are created in Christ Jesus and kept by our good works. The good works come after salvation, not before. They don't bring our salvation. They're a result of it. They're the fruit, not the seed. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, which I just think the, the Catholic Church has ignored all of the book of Galatians. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, right there, you should be able to go, yeah, see, we got this right here. But when you already have that, that, that's why that first truth is so important. When you've already got something that says, yeah, it's scripture plus tradition, then the tradition comes in, which is just as authoritative as scripture and says, yeah, you're reading that wrong. You're reading, but it says, but it says, yeah, 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 but this is what it means. Trust me, right? I walk to the front in smoke, right? So I'm very trustworthy. What I like about this passage there in Galatians 2 is it assumes that we will all obviously know that salvation comes by faith and not by works. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Why? Because he says, no one is justified by works. No one. And Paul, Paul's assuming that we all know this. This, is, this, has been tr- this has been true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. No one has ever been justified by their works. No one has ever been justified by works of the law. No one has ever been saved because they kept the works of the law. In fact, the Bible tells us not only are we saved by our faith, not by our works, we have peace with God because of faith, not by works. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where does our peace with God come from? We've been justified by faith. And because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It is our justification, which comes by faith, that has brought us peace between us and God. That will will the Christian have works? Will the fruit of that salvation be born on every Christian tree? Yes. As as Calvin says, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're not saying that. We're not saying the Christian will not have good works and good works aren't important. If you've genuinely been saved, the grace of God has saved you. If you're you're resting in your faith in Christ's work alone, what is Christ's work going to do? It's going to grow fruit. You're going to live a Christian life. Why? Because God said already in Ephesians chapter 2 that he's prepared beforehand that you should walk in these good works. You're his workmanship. Through the good works that you're going to do, he prepared for you to walk in them. We were saved by Christ for good works, but not saved by them. We're saved by faith. And so the reformers came and said, man, the Bible doesn't teach faith and works. The Bible teaches faith alone. So you've got, you've got, the, you've got scripture alone. You've got grace alone. You've got faith alone. You have in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Solus Christus. Only in Christ. See, the Catholic Church said we come to God, we come to God through multiple ways. You come to God ultimately through Christ, but you can also come through Mary or the saints who also are praying and interceding for us. Even able to give us their own righteous merits. The idea, this is what they thought. The, uh, so, again, since it's a works-based religion that they've got, you've, you've got this level of, of salvation you've got to get to. You've got this layer, this level of grace that you have to have, level of merits, and you either get there or you don't. You don't get there. What you have to do is you have to spend time in purgatory to, to pay and, and get above the desired level. But there are some people who live such righteous lives. They shot past. Would you shot past that what you got to get to point? 
right? And so since they're so far above this, they're sitting in heaven with full wallets, right? They paid the ticket to get in. And, and so they brought a hundred dollars. I got a hundred dollars worth of grace. How much do I need to get in? And the Lord's like, you need 75. And they're like, but I'll have 25 left over. He's like, that's right. And the idea is that they would sit up there with that extra merit and they could give that extra merit to those who asked. They can share that with those who need it. This is why uh, the Catholics say Hail Mary, right? What do they say? Hail Mary full of what? Full of grace. So that by praying to these others, by praying to these saints, by praying to Mary, their merits can become our merits. And what we lack, they can fill up in us. Reformation says, no, 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 we're not saved by Christ and the works of these other saints. We're saved by Christ alone. It is his merit, his work, not ours and not theirs. And that's what scripture teaches, that we're saved only through Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the only name that saves us. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. No other, not Mary's name, not the names of any saints. None of them can save us. Which is, again, what their excess grace was supposed to do. You, you weren't there where you needed to get. They give you excess grace, get you above it. None of them can do that. There's no other name that we need to call out to. We call only on the name of Christ for salvation. So Jesus is the only name that saves us. Jesus is our only victory over sin. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the, uh, for the, for the, law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So condemnation is avoided only, he says, because of our connection with Christ. It is the work of the son that condemns sin. And it's the work of the son that fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us. Our righteousness is not completed by us. Our righteousness is not completed because of the righteousness of the saints. It is only Christ that is our hope. Which leads to our next verse. That Jesus is our way to righteousness. Jesus is our only way to righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in Christ that we find our righteousness, not in ourselves and not in the saints. It is in us. There's not in us. It's, it's in Him and in Him alone. Not us, not them. He is our only hope. Even, even our works, much less the works of others, can't provide an answer. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is why it's so important. If you can be made righteous through your own works or the works of someone else, why do we have Christ? And Paul said, if we're saved by the doing of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So when you've got a church adding uh, uh, works plus Christ, you plus Jesus, what Jesus did, then plus what you do, what you're doing is you're making Christ of no purpose. If your works can be righteous and do righteous apart from him in yourself to save you, then what is the purpose of Christ? In fact, to trust in works is to lose Christ, which is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, 2 through 4. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So if you think you've got to keep this law, so you say you believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to do this aspect of law. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You trust in this work, Christ becomes of no advantage to you. It doesn't diminish the work of Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't lower Christ's work in you. It doesn't make you a less faithful Christian. He says, if you trust in your work, even if your work is circumcision, 
I'm not talking about the work of giving the Pope enough money. I'm talking about circumcision. Even if the work is circumcision, he says, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Those are are pretty stark words here. And this is again... This is again why the church was like, don't read the Bible. Remember, the, the, this is why if you tried to write the Bible in any language other than Latin, they could kill you, would kill you. Why? Because they didn't, if you read it, you see it. It's the same reason the Jews don't read Isaiah 53, right? If you read it, you see it. And so he, the, the church made it a law. You cannot have the Bible in your hands because heaven forbid you actually learned Latin and read it. You would see it. Because it cannot be denied. And so they were the gatekeepers. This is again why you, you tr- if you trust in your works or the works of the saints or the works of Mary, that's why it's so dangerous. He says, if you do this, it, Christ is of no advantage to you. It obligates you to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. If you say it is Christ plus anything Christ even plus what you do even if that thing that you do is a good thing right circumcision wasn't a bad thing marking out the people of God trusting in his covenant aligning yourself with the covenant of the Lord is a good thing he said if you think that that doing of the law is what saves you then you are severing yourself from grace saving you you're making it about what you do. And when you do that, Christ comes of no advantage. It's a, it's a bleak picture. This is not a minor situation here. This is why the reformers said, look, we have lost the gospel. Because in trusting in works, we have lost Christ. And it is Christ alone that saves us. The Bible is clear that our salvation will come through Christ alone. It is only in him that our hope is found. Now on to the last one, the last of our solace, the fifth one, the, our final only found, found clearly in the text. This one is soli deo gloria. Soli deo, only to God be the glory. That everything is to be for the glory of God alone. The Catholic Church taught that the glory for someone's salvation, it goes to Christ, but the glory also goes to Mary. The glory also goes to the saint. The glory also goes to the sinner himself because you've done it. You've done something, so you deserve a little bit of the glory. The Reformation taught all glory in all things, especially our salvation, goes only to God. He gets all the glory. He's, he gets the glory for every step of the way. Because everything is His work, not ours. It is His grace, not us. What the Reformers realized in, in Catholic theology is that the glory for salvation was ultimately going to everyone but God. That in the end, it was going to everyone else but God. And they, they started to notice people would not care about coming to church, but they would care about, they would line. This is why Luther was so frustrated because he knew the next day people were going to be lined up to get into the church, not to worship God, but to touch a saint's fingernail. To pray in front of a saint's fingernail. To pray in front of, uh, in, in, in front of the, a piece of the cross. To venerate the breast milk of Mary. So that they, that Mary might hear them and knock off some time in purgatory for them. That they were excited for that. But they were not. So they were giving glory to Mary. Listen, Mary, to my prayers. Listen, saint, to my prayers. They would line up for that, but not line up for church. Unless it was Christmas and Easter. So all glory was going to everybody, everyone but God. Because the Catholic Church taught that God had done basically all that he could do. God's done all that he could do. And so that all that was left to save us came from everybody else because God had done everything he could do. And so Mary's work might be what was needed. The, the work of the saints might clear, bridge that gap. Your own works could do it. Now again, This is still a danger because people will say that God has done all that he can. It's now up to you to take the final step. But the Bible is clear. All glory goes to God for the whole process of your salvation. All glory, every step of the way, it is him doing it. It is his grace. It is his work. So the Bible tells us we are saved. Why are we saved? We are saved for God's glory. We're going to read about uh, 
our salvation in Ephesians 1. And I want you to notice how much of our salvation that we were saved, not because God had warm fuzzies about us, that we were saved for his glory, that on the cross, you weren't on his mind as much as God was on his mind. His glory was on his mind. Now your salvation brings him glory, but he wasn't just up there going, oh man, he's just so cute and I can't wait to save him. That the Bible tells us that you were saved for God's glory. Ephesians tells us this. Even as he chose, Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us, blessed us in the beloved. So it says here, why did God predestine you for salvation? In love, he predestined us for, for, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, for what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Which is so mind-blowing to us, because again, we, we are, quite frankly, sometimes shocked that the history of the universe uh, and the work of God in the universe doesn't revolve around us. We're like, oh, it's, not, it's not about me. He gads. But that's what the Bible tells us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Look at what it says. You just have to go down a couple verses. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first opened Christ might be, what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So God works us to hope in Christ. Why does God work us to hope in Christ? Why does God work a hope in Christ? Why does he work faith in us so that his glory will be praised? He says the Holy Spirit seals us. Why does the Holy Spirit seal us until we get our inheritance? Why does the Holy Spirit make sure that you do not fall away? What is the purpose of that? Why does he do that ultimately? He says what? So that his glory will be praised to the praise of his glory. This isn't new. Paul's not saying, guys, I've realized something new. Salvation isn't about us. And everyone's going, what? It's not about us. The Bible's always taught. That God saved a people out of this earth and is going to save a people till his glory covers the earth like waters cover the sea. Why? For the sake of his glory. Listen to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now, this is not talking about the creation of all of humanity here. You read Isaiah 43. It's not talking about the creation of all of humanity here. It's talking about the creation of his people the people who are called by his name. He says, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created. Why did God create us as his people? For his glory. Whom I formed and I made. Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself. Remember, this is in that section in Isaiah where he's making fun of the idols and idolatry and how they're forming idols and worshiping them. And God says, I formed something. I formed a people. You form an idol and you give it glory. You form it and you give it glory. He says, I formed you for my glory. I formed you for my glory. I saved you, Israel, for my glory. I made you, my people, what? For my glory. I gave you my name, why? For my glory, not yours. Our salvation is for his glory and his glory alone. Every step in salvation, every work in salvation for his glory, not yours, not the saints, not Mary, no one. And so too is our whole life. As we're not just saved for God's glory, we're to live for God's glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Why? Because that's what you're saved for. You don't do all to the glory of God because that's some noble purpose in life. You do all things to the glory of God. Why? Because that's why you are what you are. Your entire purpose in life, you as a believer were, were saved for what purpose? To glorify him. So when you're figuring out, should I eat or not eat? Should I drink or not drink? Your question better be, does it bring glory to God? Why? Because that's why you're here. That's why you're his people. That's why you bear the name of Christ. 
It's for his glory. That's why he saved you, for his glory. So when you look at, what should I do? What should I do? Well, what's your purpose? His glory. Do that. Do that thing that brings him glory. Do that thing, like Mike said, do that thing that shows you have a fear of the Lord. Like we talk about the fear of the Lord that's meant to show the world that we think God is amazing. Whatever choice you're making, look and go, what action shows that I fear the Lord? Do that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in your words or in your deeds, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. It's all for him. Our salvation is for his glory. Our whole life is for his glory. God is glorified for all things. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything is from him. All good comes through him. All is for him. So he is glorified in everything. And in the last day, it is God alone that will be glorified. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Everything in the end will be to give him glory. All of it. We will look at everything we've done and it will be but humility. Everything in our Christian life is to the glory of God and the glory of God should be what drives everything in our Christian life. So if you wanted to, how could you sum up the five solas? The Bible, there's a sola scripture term. The Bible teaches us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That is the hope of the gospel. And Christian, that is your hope alone. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to prayerfully consider how we might respond to this text. We take our time and we do our uses. What do you do with what we have read? The first thing, that, that grand call that became a, a promise and we want to defend against, you must, you must remember and you must make sure that your children remember. You must ensure that these truths will never be forgotten because of you. That someone can never just ignore them and then eventually after enough time has passed, pervert them and pervert the gospel itself. You, you make sure that in what you can do, in your church, in your family, in your own life, that these alones are the only thing there. That these alones are what drive everything. That you center what you believe on what the gospel says. And you make sure you remember. You make sure you don't forget. You make sure your kids don't forget. You make sure your church doesn't forget. Look, anything can be forgotten if it's not cherished. Cherish this work of God. Cherish these truths of Scripture. If you don't cherish them and you want to go off to all these other ideas and all these other thoughts, eventually these will become things you only think about once a year, maybe. We've got, to, we've got to see these works here, not just as five academic things to know. Oh, I know the five solas. I'll do good on Reformation Jeopardy. But we've got to see these truths as our salvation, as our hope, as our purpose. What could be loftier than that? What could be grander? What could capture our heart more? So cherish these truths. Don't let them be just academic. Cherish what scripture has laid out for us. 
about the power of his word, about the work of Christ, about God's grace in, his, in our life, about the faith that we, that, that, that we must have in him and in him alone, and about our purpose to glorify him. Cherish those things. Be driven in all of your life by those things. But to do that, we must submit ourselves to the word and to the truths of the word. If we submit ourselves, not just to the word, but to the word and how we grew up, or to the word and what we've always believed, or to the word and what whomever has always believed, or to the word and, and, and this thing that I just heard, or to the word and what I think about God. We must submit ourselves to the word and the word alone. We must say, Scripture alone will determine what I believe. If we don't, then the devil is free to add anything and eventually to pile on Scripture, Scripture's bones a mountain of man-made tradition. Like there, are, there are great truths that we learn from others. There is wisdom. There is wisdom in the, the shoulders of those we stand upon. But that wisdom is only as wise as it is founded in the Word of God. And lastly, these aren't just doctrinal truths. These are, these are, these are reasons to praise. In, in, in these texts that we looked at, the Bible isn't just highlighting truths that we must believe, although we must. It's highlighting for us what God has done for us. And, and, and what he is doing for us in our lives still. And the means he is doing to do miracles in your life. Not just miracles in the lives of some saints. And so those miracles prove that these saints are... Your life is a miraculous work of God. Every breath that you take and desire to live for his glory is, is something you do solely by the grace of God at work in you. It's never about you. It's all about his workmanship as he's working these good things in you that he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. It's all him. It's all his grace all the way down. So it's all a reason to praise him. It's all a reason to, of course, wake up every Lord's Day and say, of course I'm going to worship you today. What else would I do? Because look what you've done for me. How else would I spend my time? Of course, every minute of every day, not just the Lord's Day. I'm going to live for you. Why? Because it's all by your grace. All of my hope, all that I am is because of you. How could I not live for you in the little things and the big things? These truths will rip any pride from our salvation. And as they humble us, we will have but one place to turn, and they will fix our eyes on Christ. They humble us, and they place us under God and His Word. That's why we remember them. That's why we don't forget them. Because we want to remember him. And we never want to forget his work. And his work alone. Father, we are your people. And yet you tell us that your people have been called by your name for your glory. That you created us for your glory. And so, Father, we want to glorify you. We want to glorify you in every step of our life, every step of understanding our salvation. So we'll go to your word alone. We won't go to the words of men and, and build upon those. We will, we will go to your word alone and we'll see there in your word that we're saved by grace alone, in, in, in faith alone, Father, faith in Christ alone. That we will learn all those things from your word as you have explained to us what you're doing in us. So, Father, help us to understand how to even think about our salvation. Here we are at church wanting to worship you, but we can only worship you rightly when we understand our salvation rightly. Because you've said if we add things to our salvation, if, if we add things to our justification, we sever ourselves from Christ. Even if those are good things, if we think I'm saved by you and me, we sever ourselves from the hope of salvation. It is a different gospel. And Father, we know that apart from Christ, we have no hope. 
And so may these words, may these words uh, bring us back from the edge. May these words convict us or drive us back to make sure that everything we think of about our life, we, we see in light of Jesus, we see in light of your work in us, that we would see all of our salvation is about you and you alone. That is our chief thought. You alone. It is all you. And so we will do it all for your glory. Help us to remember that, Father. May it motivate us when we want to be lazy. May it wake us up when we are tired. May it drive us to obey you even when life is difficult. May we do all things for your glory, the easy things and the hard things. May we be good husbands for your glory. May we be noble wives for your glory. May we be children that honor our parents for your glory. May we think of your glory when we're at the gas station. May we think of your glory when we're at the grocery store, when we're at our jobs. May your glory drive everything because your glory is everything because you have done everything in us we are all from beginning to end as christians by you and you alone so may you be lifted up this day and every day may we honor you in all that we do it's in christ's name and in christ's name alone that we pray amen